Welcome back to the show. It's Grante, and today we have another episode of The Griffin Review. Here with me is co-conspirator and geopolitical analyst, Matt. Matt, what's been going on? So, there are a few things that have been going on, especially around Russia, considering that the last time you and I talked, there hadn't been a rebellion, and since the last time we've talked, there's now been, there a rebellion. been a rebellion. <laughs> so that's a that's a pretty big change of function, a little bit. So there's a lot of things we can say about the current Russian situation, but at the center of all of them is Prigozhin and Wagner, because those are the most relevant issues for Russia right now. Now, before we get into the weeds of that stuff, can I have you please tell us a little bit of background on who Prigozhin is, what Wagner is, and what what, why we should be concerned, or... Yeah. 30 seconds of detail. Okay, well, this is a lot more than 30 seconds, but I'll try. So, Prigozhin is known as Putin's chef, and that's because Prigozhin really is a bit of an oligarch in the sense that he runs catering for a lot of Russian restaurants. Now, while you might not think there's a lot of money in this, there is a lot of money, especially at the upper echelons of government contracting. Well, so catering like actual foods and restaurant when you said food, catering yeah. i thought it was like an, an analogy no 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 he's the actual he's called putin's chef for a reason because he controls government contracts as it relates to food interesting and that's very important when you're talking about food supply chains so Prigozhin has made a lot of money for himself in addition Prigozhin put himself in a key position with the wagner group now the wagner group is russia's paramilitary organization designed for shady dealings overseas. This is one of the main outlets for Russian veterans who survived the front lines. Mm. While there might not be that many of Russian veterans who survived the front lines these days. That doesn't happen a lot. For the last 20 years, there has been. And so a lot of Wagner's units are made up of both the worst elements of the Russian army, the conscripts, the prisoners, the what have you. And the best elements of the Russian army, the people who were previous Russian special forces or long-term veterans who just don't know what else to do with their lives because all they know is combat. So it's a mercenary group. Are they uni- are they directly contractually tied to the Russian government, or is that just who they happen to work for right now? So that's been a little bit of an oopsie situation, and I'm glad you brought that up. The Russian government has used the Wagner Group to handle plausible deniability for the last few years. Yeah. This is important because if you, let's just say, need a small village on the outside of some Congolese district to be raised to the ground, you use Wagner because, A, they'll do it quickly and effectively, but more importantly, they're not going to have ties back to the Russian government. Mm-hmm. So the Russian government can say, no, no, no I'm so sorry, we didn't mean that to happen. It was all a big misunderstanding. That, uh, at the risk of pissing off YouTube, that sounds like a lot of bullshit because it is. we all know that... Putin's pulling the strings for him. Right. but We know that they're Russian people and tied and contracted. Well, they've they've done this in enough locations and they've gotten away with it for long enough to the point where people did turn a blind eye to it. Like, we didn't really talk about the effects of the Syrian civil war, even though Russia was directly involved in it by way of Wagner. Really? Yeah. So they've had their forces deployed all over for a very long time. Yeah, I knew that the whole drama of, you know, Russian involvement with the Syrian civil war was pretty significant on the, like, high-level technology. Right. But I didn't realize it was Wagner directly involved, not the actual Russian military. And it's not just Syria. It's also Kazakhstan. It's also Nagorno-Karabakh with the Armenian and Azerbaijan conflict. Every former post-Soviet state 
or even the direct neighbors to those post-Soviet states are all subject to Wagner interference and thereby Russian clean hands by saying, oh, nope, it's just Wagner. We had nothing to do with it. They're doing their own thing. But You can't keep getting away with this. Exactly. And that's what we'll talk about when we talk a little bit more about Prigozhin here in a minute. Sure. Well, let, let's get into that because one of the things that we have on the topic today, which has happened since our last show, there's been a rebellion, a legitimate <laughs> uprising of dissent between yeah. these top players in one of the more important political and warfare conflicts on our planet right now, which could potentially stem into a nuclear conflict. These are these are these are people with their hands near the button, if not hovering above it. What happened in this rebellion? What kicked it off and how did it resolve? So there are three main takeaways from this Prigozhin rebellion. First off is that Prigozhin had support from inside the military. Ah. And what we're starting to find out now is that there have been dissident elements of the Russian military, especially in the general staff, that have disagreed with many of the decisions Putin has made. As such, they looked at Prigozhin and Wagner as a potential outlet for ousting Putin and running a more direct and, shall we say, inhumane means of warfare. Hmm. Second main takeaway is that there is apparent collusion with the Kremlin. While Prigozhin was getting all of this input, he was also telling this to the Kremlin. He was directly communicating what was going on to the Kremlin. And the reason we know this is he's still alive. If Prigozhin had been operating on his own, completely on his own, without support from the Kremlin, he would not be alive right now. Well, can I ask something? Uh, Of your geopolitical experience, what is the level of control that the Russian president has over the Kremlin? Is it... What, what's the equivalency of the U.S. president being able to veto or declare war powers on the U.S.'s? I'm just trying to look for an equivalent in our, and to give our viewers an equivalent of the power which the Kremlin and the president share. Well, in this case, the president is the most important political body in the Russian state, has executive function power similar to what we would see in the United States, but also has enormous powers in the parliament. So one of the issues that we've had talking about Russia for a while, in comparison to the United States where there's a system of checks and balances where the president is not supposed to interfere with Senate, is not supposed to interfere with Congress, is not supposed to interfere with the Supreme Court, in Russia that all goes out the window. And the president is in fact supposed to do all of those things and interfere with the other branches of government as they act. Is that kind of defined within his job description? Because in the U.S. Yes. it's defined as it's not Exactly. It's a they're blacklisted functions for the United States president, but they're whitelisted for the Russian president. So as such, he has a coalition built around of him himself based on personal loyalties to him. So what the Wagner group allowed is that allowed for Putin to weed out anybody who is going to back Wagner over the Kremlin. Ah. It was a really good way of figuring out where people's loyalties lie and now people had to show their hand that's what Mm -hmm. you're saying yeah cards are on the table cards are on the table where's Prigozhin now that's a really good question we know Prigozhin is alive and we know he's in a weird state of things what do I mean by that Prigozhin is an old man and like many Russian males has not taken very good care of his health over his long life I'm not sure if any of you guys have ever been to Russia but Outside of the train stations, there's these little babushkas who sell you 
small amounts of vodka to start your day with. Like, it is not a health-conscious society, mm. right? This is, across the board, has some of the lowest quality of life for any developed country, and simultaneously has some of the shortest life expectancy of any developed country. Tied into that somewhere is, like, the outrageous level of alcohol consumption, too, right? It, it's, it's, let's just say it's not healthy. Sure, let's just, sure. Just, let, let, let's leave it that. But Progrosian, right. he's on, uh, what I hear is he's on the run. Is he still in charge of the Wagner Group? But he's not necessarily on the run. That, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. It seems that Prigozhin, with this Wagner move, was looking for retirement. Oh. It's, it's one of those things that we don't really talk about, but no man lives forever, and no man fights forever. Sure. It really seems that Prigozhin was using this opportunity to oust his and Putin's enemies and use this as leverage to get himself out of conflict he doesn't want to be in a war zone he doesn't want to work with a war zone anymore that's a risky way to do it by almost declaring war upon your boss who is vladimir putin you don't really do that it it is a risky way of doing it but think about it another way prigozhin hedged his bets in the cruelest of ways possible so imagine this if everybody everybody had sided with prigozhin he probably would have marched on moscow but because only a small number of people sided with Prigozhin, he could then just turn over their names to the Kremlin and act like he was always working with Putin all along. This is the plot of a video game. Yeah. It, it was <laughs> Star Wars The Force Unleashed. Yeah. I mean, go collect all my enemies and start a rebellion. Oh, double cross. Let's just kill all the enemies right now. Exactly. So he. God, no, that's genius. No matter what, he was going to be fine. Because at the end of the day, it seems to me. That Prigozhin just didn't like to be shot at anymore. And, and I can't blame the guy. You know, doing work on the front lines in Ukraine while you're forcing conscripts to go charge the enemy front lines where all, all going to get massacred, it's not a fun job. Um, and it seems like Prigozhin was looking for retirement. Mm-hmm. So in all of this, all I can really see is that this was Prigozhin's out. Whether he succeeded or whether he failed, he was going to get out. And it's why Prigozhin was actually offered a spot in the Russian army, uh-huh. but declined it. Mm. He said, nope, I don't want to be a general. Well, crafty dude. Yeah. In, you know, I, I remember you saying that there was actually three key takeaways for us to have. Mm-hmm. Can you give us the three key takeaways from the Wagner Rebellion? Absolutely. So, first off, Prigozhin had support from inside the military. Mm. Most importantly, and those people are going to be weeded out and crushed. Secondly, there was apparent collusion with the Kremlin. Prigozhin was working with the Kremlin to figure out exactly who was on the chopping block and who was a Kremlin loyalist, who was a Putin loyalist. Lastly, why? Why did all of this happen? And there are three subpoints under this. Oh boy. First off, this incorporates Wagner assets into the Russian army. So the Russian army is now adopting every part of Wagner the veterans to the conscripts and they will be using Wagner forces as they were used before just as Russian auxiliaries. Secondly, Prigozhin's retirement. Prigozhin's gone. This is the end of Prigozhin. He doesn't want to do this anymore. Lastly, this gets rid of Shoigu. This really diminishes his influence and because Shoigu is a complete idiot and part of the reason that the Russians are very poorly armed today, Mm. this is still a boon for the Kremlin. So even though I think this is embarrassing beyond belief for Russia, it still might be salvageable for Putin and for his allies. 
uh, which is why it's so important for us to ask, what's going to happen next? Yeah. Well, let's move on to the next spot that um, we're still staying within that e this war in the Eastern Europe, right? But I've been hearing some horror stories coming out of Ukraine. I have to ask, Ukrainian civilians are disappearing. Why? So Ukrainian civilians are being moved from ad hoc camps to what are essentially new gulags. And this isn't just happening to the Ukrainian men and women, but also to the children. The children are being taken through camps, but they're also being taken forcibly into orphanages and Russian foster homes. Now, why this matters so much is that it's displacing the entirety of the ethnic Ukrainian populace mm. in eastern Ukraine. Of That's which, the goal. Of which there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who will be displaced. Secondly, it gives Russia what is essentially a new indentured workforce. And I'm using that word coyly because of YouTube AdSense. But this is a human rights atrocity that we're going to be looking at moving forward. Is, and it's a new gulag system. To draw, I, I hope this is an equivalent, an equivalency, but is there any comparison to the Uyghur camps in China? A lot. Um, except in this case, it's not ethnic genocide, mm. which, again, the no-no word I know. But it's important to remember that this is not to destroy the Ukrainian identity, but it's to displace it. I see. So the Russian imperial system, as it's existed since you know, the time of Peter the Great, it's never been about destroying ethnicity. It's about displacing it, moving it from point A to point B where it can be controlled, monitored, and still flourish. Really? Right? They just want to get people out of their comfort zones. They want to move uh, Tartars. They want to move the Siberians. They want to move groups of people around and displace them and configure them in a pattern to where none of them have the strength to fight against the Russian Federation, the Russian Tsar, the Russian what have yeah. you. That's actually a really smart move. I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm supporting any of this shit, but it, it, instead of ethnic cleansing, yeah. this just makes it easier to control a population. And it really does. This uprooting, placing within what you're saying, it's like a gulag, and you're probably wholly dependent upon the the guards for food and for a long time the russians imperial system was built on hey you know what we're not really gonna have any oversight we just need to move you from point a to point b and then if anybody comes a knock in you just say yeah we're actually russians you don't have to do anything more than that you don't have to say anything more than that just you know when the Chinese, when the English, when the French, when the Germans, whenever anybody else comes to ask whose territory is this, just say, it's Russian territory. Mm. And if you do that, we won't screw with you. And it was a pretty, it was a pretty simple imperial system because it basically just painted people with a, with a Russian brush without ever implementing any governance. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're going to keep pushing. I know we're okay. almost out of time. We're going to keep working because I need to get to the bottom of this. Absolutely. And I know we haven't had, we've had a bit of charged language, but what's going on in these camps? Are, uh, is it camps, or are they just moving people to old apartment buildings in places that they want them to be? This is a new... We, we gotta we'll, know. We'll call it a new internment style. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to use other words, 
because those words haven't been proven yet. I think gulag and ghetto are as close as we're going to get right now. Exactly. But regardless, I can say that by the end of this conflict, we'll get to know the depravity of the Russian government simply by what they have done to these people in these camps. Interesting. Not things that we want to hear, but information that we have to have. These are current events happening. This is reality, folks. And we need to know these things to make the right decisions, to be good citizens acting upon our government and upon our world. And on that note, I'm going to ask one more question about this topic, and that's the fact I know that there was a NATO summit recently. Mm. I think that they voted to let Finland in. Finland and Sweden. Finland and Sweden in, and uh, a lot of, you know, anger from Zelensky and the Ukrainian forces about when's our turn. Mm -hmm. It's when's a, their turn? It's a good question, but their, tune, their, their turn comes as soon as there's not Russians in Ukrainian territory. NATO doesn't want to start a nuclear war. That is the thing NATO was designed to avert. <laughs> so I appreciate the fact that a lot of good Ukrainian men, women, and children are dying right now. The West is more concerned about a nuclear warhead going off in Berlin. Mm. The rest, West is more concerned about a nuclear warhead going off in Warsaw which are two locations the Russians would target to stop NATO forces from flooding in to their Western front. Yeah. So it's not, that, it's not that what's happening is just. It's what's happening is necessary from a Western perspective to keep the war contained. Wow. Wow. You know, all, all we see is escalation. I don't yeah. think I've seen a, you know, a headline that says the war's backing off or s some kind of progress. It's all, okay, we're going to give you guys F-16 training now. Uh, we're going to send F-16 soon. We're going to send you guys Javelin missiles. It's all escalation. And these are the kind of headlines that we saw in 1914, 1913. There... Nothing's happening yet, but the pieces are moving. And I'm, I'm concerned. This is a world I live in. There's a phrase that Roman historians used to use about the Roman Empire, is that when the Romans would conquer a location... They would say the Romans made a desert and they called it victory, which is essentially their way of saying all the Romans would actually do is they just annihilate everything living within a X mile radius. And sow the land with salt. And sow the land with salt. And then they'd say, yep, this is Rome now. This is now part of our sovereign border. And the same thing is kind of happening in Ukraine with Russia right now, mm. is that Russia is very, very slowly whittling down ukrainians by mm. number of ukrainians who are still able to fight they're a large with, they have russia has way more people yeah you look at the human bodies and ukraine cannot stand up to that wave and they're just throwing them at yeah. ukraine now it's and a strategy and the issue comes into play with with the minefields that they're creating on their uh, on their front line the trenches the indiscriminate shooting of military personnel and civilians russia's making a desert and they're trying to call it victory and so to that extent, the West has an obligation, not necessarily a moral imperative, but to defend their own interests as they pertain to Ukrainian victory. And that sounds like a war of attrition. Yeah. Just destroy the land and make it so that you don't want it. We'll put our people there. We'll take it. Yeah. And it'll grow back. Not a happy thought, but that's where we stand. And I think on that unhappy thought, we're actually going to take a break. <laughs> And we'll be back in a little bit. Thanks for watching. Yeah.